0: Good morning, Quora My name is George. I'll be reading uh, the Word of, God, of the Lord uh, from First Peter chapter two, verse one to twelve. I'll be reading it from the NIV version. Therefore, rid yourself of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now that is you have t- tasted that the Lord is good. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builder rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that has caused people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires, which wage war against you, against your soul. Live such a good lives among the pag- pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see you good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. It's the word of the Lord.
1: Our air conditioning is so strong. It blows off these every week, every communion. All right. So we're jumping into uh, this part of 1 Peter. And just to remind us that this is a letter that was written thousands of years ago to the Christians that were in what we would or they knew then as Asia Minor, but it's current day Turkey. Uh, and so that area was just uh, Christians had planted different churches through the work of different uh, people, the Apostle Paul being one of those. But this is written. This letter was written by Peter, who was. Uh, And one of the 12 chosen apostles, one of the disciples of Jesus when he was alive that he chose and was one of those three that were closest to him. And so Peter was writing this letter primarily to these people in this area of the world because they were facing a lot of persecution for being followers of Jesus and therefore they were facing a lot of trouble in their lives, politically, personally, emotionally, physically, all those things. And so he is writing this letter to try to encourage them. Hang in there. This is who you are. So keep that in mind as we delve into this, this part of the, the letter, because today we're going to see that he is encouraging them and us who follow Jesus, that it's about that we grow in Christ as the body. And when we grow in Christ, we grow in who we are. We're understanding who we are, our identity. And then our identity guides our actions and what we do. So, in other words, who we believe we are determines what we do. So, think of what what you do. It's very tied to who you believe you are right now. Well, to illustrate and get us into this kind of thinking, uh, I have this this, uh, illustration here. It's behind the scenes of this one Arizona circus, all right, there was this guy, this mentor, executive mentor. He, he was a mentor to businesses, and also he's an author. His name is Bob Beal. And he interviewed this man at this circus who trained animals for Hollywood movies. And so he also trained the animals for the circus. And he, Bob Beal asked this guy, he said, how is it that you stake down a 10-ton, that's a 20,000-pound, a heavy elephant with the same stake that you uh, stake down this little guy over here, which is just a baby elephant, just 300 pounds, which is still bigger than any one of us here, right? (laughs) Well, we're not going to get into the weight thing, but yeah, (laughs) but at least I'm guessing it is. And so he asked this question, pointing to this little baby elephant who was staked down as well. Well, the trainer said, well, it's easy because when they're a little baby elephant, we stake them down like we see here. And this little baby elephant tries and tries, maybe a thousand times, trying to pull away from that stake, and it can't. It fails every time. And so then his elephant memory kicks in, and he says, I can't get away from the stake. So then, when he becomes an adult elephant, which is 20,000 pounds, that elephant memory is so strong, he just keeps thinking, I can't break away from the stake, even though he easily could if he tried. He gets stuck in this memory and and oftentimes as humans we as well have these mental stakes that form when we're young by some insensitive uncaring um, kind of unwise person that might give us these zingers when we're a young person and says oh he's not good at planning or she's not a good leader or that's a really stupid question you know these things then could be like mental stakes into our minds. And then as we grow as adults, these are the stakes that still are there forming us in our identity of what we think we, who we are and what we can do. And it holds us back. But in reality, we are much more capable than we think we are of, especially as we follow the Lord Christ as Him being our Lord. Because... When we grow and mature as followers of the Lord Jesus, then we are growing and maturing. Because anything healthy, if you look at the world, anything healthy grows. So like if we're young, we grow in size. And then once we stop growing in size, we grow older. And once we stop growing, we're dead. We're not going to grow anymore. We have stopped growing. Uh, And the same truth applies to us as his church the body of Christ. The problem is sometimes we as the body of Christ live like this 10-ton elephant where we have this mental stake in us that holds us back. And one of the things I've heard many times over the years as a pastor is like, oh, we've tried that before and it doesn't work. Well, it, it may not have worked then, but it doesn't mean it's not gonna work now. I mean, there's no truth in that unless we evaluate and think about it. But that could be a mental stake for us. Well, today's text in First Peter, chapter two, 1 through 12, which George has read for us, teaches us this truth. Oh, there's the picture of the elephants. I forgot to bring that up. There's the big guy and the little guy. Just interesting. when I was preparing for this, um, I just thought. I was doing, and I saw in Google, you know, it offers these things when you're searching for things, and it said elephant attack, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, so I I looked at that, just do that, Google, it's pretty amazing how strong these elephants are, they tip cars over, and you see all these videos of elephant attacks, it's very rare, okay, but, you know, after you watch like 20 of them, you think like every elephant's going to be that way, but it's pretty interesting how strong they are. But this truth that we will see in this text that we're looking at today is that our growth shapes our identity. This is all in context of being in Christ. And our identity determines our actions. So we're going to see this kind of helps us understand this passage, this overall, this uh, theme here. So Peter tells us these three important truths about us as the church of Jesus Christ. The first truth is really how we grow in Christ as a body of Christ. How do we grow as the body of Christ? How do we grow as we've seen this theme throughout foreigners and aliens in this world? And think about it. We've, we've probably met somebody like this at some point in our life, an adult, who uh, has grown physically, of, of course, but still seems to think and act like a child right? We've, I've met some like that. Um, sometimes we are like that, right? But, uh, but we've all met them, and I'm not talking about someone who likes to play or have fun. No, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about adults who are childish when it comes to dealing with conflict or making decisions. They're, like, they're childish, and they're not mature about it, and these people's growth really has been stifled in some way and something is hindering their growth. It's kind of like the story of a man who worked for this company for 25 years, doing the same job and receiving the same salary. And then after 25 years, he finally said, I'm fed up. So he goes to his boss, and he says, Boss, I have a quarter of a century experience. And the boss sighed and said, Friend, you don't have a quarter of a century experience. You have one experience for a quarter of a century. (laughs) And what he was saying to this man is, you've been doing the same thing and you've never changed or grown or expanded. You've just been doing the same thing. He didn't grow. Well, how do we grow as the body of Christ? Well, verse one gives us that instruction. Rid ourselves of sinful practices. To grow, we as the body of Christ must act on what we believe. And Paul, I mean, Peter gives very practical advice here. He says, therefore, in verse 1, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Now, remember, he's talking about the body of Christ. So this is stuff that happens among us or or we're practicing it and even outside with others. Rid yourselves. You know, that simply means this image here is to take off like our clothes. If we're going to rid ourselves of our clothes like we do when we take a shower... We just take them off. It means to cease having any connection to do with these things. So rid yourselves of these sinful practices. It's, but this is not how we usually think, right? If we're going to be healthy and grow, we think like what we need, what we need to add to our lives, like exercise or take vitamins or control what we eat, eat the right food or get enough rest because this, this will help that occur. But the apostle Peter here is not emphasizing this part. He's emphasizing first to rid ourselves of the things that hinder our growth in Christ. Just like we would, in a sense, if we're gonna plant a vegetable garden, right? What are we gonna do first? We have to pull the weeds up and prepare the ground before we even plant the the seeds that we hope will grow. And... As the vegetables grow, we still have to continue to weed the garden so that they don't hinder the growth of our plants that we've planted. So think about it. What are the weeds in your life that are hindering your growth in Christ? Well, Peter lists a few weeds in our text. The first one is malice. Malice just simply is the intent or the desire to harm others. I hope we don't have that here. But yes, that's one of them. The second one he mentions is deceit. Deceit is the deliberate attempt to mislead other people by lying or half-truths or exaggerations. And the, other, and the next one he mentions is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is the kind of deceit in which we pretend to be something different than we really are. Especially like if we're pretending to do things Out of our good motives, but in actuality, it's out of our selfish motives. Another is envy. Envy is simply longing for what somebody else has. Oh, I wish I could have that. And then another, the last one he mentions is slander. Oops, there we go. Slander. Slander is literally talking down other people, tearing them down. I mean, this is very common in our culture and also in our congregation, I would imagine. It's just part of our American culture. It seems like tearing others down is so easy to do. It's easy to criticize other people because then it makes us feel better about ourselves, right? (laughs) I'm not as bad as they are because, you know, whatever, right? And uh, these are the weeds that choke our growth in Christ Jesus as a body. So do you recognize any of these weeds in your life? But getting rid of the weeds is only prepares... The environment for growth. It doesn't cause the growth in Christ. It just prepares the environment so there's opportunity to grow. But Peter knew this, and so he gives us the second part to how we grow in Christ. And that is, he says, crave spiritual food. Verses 2 and 3 help us uh, say this. Like newborn babies, craves pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Now we need nourishment, just like plants need nourishment. And to grow, we need to eat right. And this is what it's talking about, spiritual food. But Peter didn't leave it there. He stressed that we are to crave spiritual food. That means to uh, have an eager desire for, to, like, in a sense, be addicted to spiritual food. Um, And this means we eagerly desire to learn as much as we can about the Lord God from his word and desire to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the result then? Well, it's so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Now this speaks of the salvation of when Jesus returns and he rids the world of sin and its consequences And so we will, in a sense, mature as a body of Christ, looking forward to that time when he returns and we are free of sin. But we are growing, maturing. This means we eagerly desire to learn and see Christ in our lives. We have been saved in Christ, and we are going to be saved. And that's that already not yet aspect of our faith. And the Lord will completely rid us of sin, but... The key here is, have you tasted Jesus? Have you tasted and seen that he's good? The whole image of craving is that we have tasted something so good that we want more of it. I mean, we really want want more of it. I think I need some water. I'm craving water. Are you hungry? So we grow by ridding ourselves of these sinful desires. My voice is gone. And that just provide, prepares the environment for our growth. So then we crave spiritual food. It's about lunchtime. Is that making you hungry? <clears throat> and as the church, what, we are, what are we growing up to be? Well, the scripture says right here that we just read, we grow up in our salvation in verse 2. Who is our salvation? Jesus, he is our salvation, so we are to grow up into our salvation. And this is what the Apostle Paul describes in Ephesians 4.15. He he just says it right out. He says, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head. That is Christ. Peter in verses 4 through 10 of our text then give us five ways. um, Well, he gives us a second truth, which is, who we are in Christ, our identity, and then he gives us five identifications of what we are in Christ as the body of Christ. You know, it's not unusual to identify ourselves in different ways, right? For example, me, I I am a pastor, I'm a son, I'm a husband, I'm a, a follower of Jesus, I'm alumnus, and I'm a friend, These are five ways I I just described myself. Actually, is that five? One, two, three, four, five, six. That's six ways. I, I went one more. But think of five ways you can describe yourself. This is our identity, or at least what we think is our identity, what we think of ourselves. But how we describe ourselves is really rooted in our identity. And these describe who we are. And Peter described our identity as a church in our text five ways. So we're just going to fly through these. The first is in verse 4. We are people who come to him, the living stone, and we are identified as a people who seek to be in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, the living stone. What's interesting here is this word for stone in the original language of Greek that this was written in, is not a, like a rock, that we a pebble we would pick up or a, a boulder that's sticking out of the ground that we might stub our toe on. No, this is talking about a stone that has been dressed and cut and prepared to fit into the building, a building. And specifically, and later um, in verse 6, Jesus is mentioned to be the cornerstone. And this, a, a cornerstone, was a specific stone that was first laid in a foundation cut specifically, laid there, and then on which all the other stones were measured and prepared and then able to conform to, to make the whole building. So you can see the image here of Jesus being our cornerstone is that everything is built on him, our Lord and our Savior. So we are those who go to the Lord Jesus. We want to be in his presence. The second one is in verse five, is that we are... A spiritual house. And Peter carries this metaphor of stones. And this is a similar word here that each one of you and me who are part of the body of Christ are shaped to fit together to be like in a spiritual house. Now, these look like they're more rocks, they're picked up and not shaped, but they are fit, fitting together. So this is the image here is that we are all fit together to make a spiritual house, as Paul, uh, Peter put it. And in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul. Put it this way, he says, don't you know that you are yourselves or God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? So we, the body of Christ, are a spiritual house. And it's this image of the temple, the Old Testament temple in, the, in Jerusalem. Now Solomon built that temple. The special thing about that temple was that God's presence was specifically and specially there in the Holy of Holies. And that's why that that temple was so important. But that temple was destroyed many years ago. And now the truth is that we are God's temple in which God's presence specifically and especially dwells in us as the body of Christ. Think of that. That's amazing. That means the living, holy God is here right now. And not only here because he's everywhere, you know, we can go up to the moon; he'll be there, <laughs> right? We could go light years away; he'd be there. know the depths of the oceans, he's there. But he is especially here when the body gathers together, and he indwells us in his Holy Spirit. The third way Peter described us is this also in verse five: we are a holy priesthood. Now, our purpose here is to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable God to God through Jesus. The main point here is that a priest is a mediator between God and mankind, people. And so when we as priests all together, we are, our role is simply to point people to God, to Jesus. That's it. So if we are identified ourselves as a priest, then we just our role is to point people to Jesus. It's simple as that. So we are priests, we are foreigners, we are exiles, Pointing people to the Lord Jesus for hope in this dark world. The fourth way we see that we are as a church is in verses seven and eight. We are not like those who reject Him. Now, this might be a little confusing, but bear with me here is that many people disobey the gospel in the sense that when they hear the gospel, they don't accept that Jesus is God incarnate, that He died and He rose again from the dead. They reject that truth. But in this sense, then, Jesus is the stone on which people trip over. It's like he's the cornerstone that was laid for the purposes of God. They haven't built on that stone, so it becomes an obstacle. They keep tripping over. It's in their way, and they fall on over the stone to their own destruction. That's the image here. But we are not like those who reject Jesus. And the fifth way that's described here in verses 9 and 10... We are a chosen people, a holy nation, God's special possession. Now, notice I skipped the uh, priesthood because I already talked about that. So to be a chosen people is not only an indication of privilege, like, hey, you are chosen, but it is also a summons to service, right? Because why am I choosing you, right? Because I'm going to ask you to do something, right? (laughs) So, you know, voluntold in that sense we say, right? (laughs) But yeah, we are a chosen people. Because of the grace of the Lord Christ, when we accept him, then we become engrafted into his people, and he has given us purposes to do. So to be a holy nation means we are set apart by all the other people of the world for God's purposes. That's why we're chosen. This means that our identity as God's people is visible in the quality of our lives. Because remember, what the whole idea of being foreigners and Exiles means we are separate, we're different. When people look at us, they say, (laughs) they're they're weird, they're they're different from us. You know, what we are determines what we're capable of doing. Let me give you an illustration of this. This guy, uh, a story of Fritz Kreisler. He's a violinist, a very good violinist. And he set out one day from Hamburg, Germany, where he lived, to go to London for a concert. So he's on the way, and he's waiting. He has about an hour before his boat goes off. You know, this is a long time ago, so planes weren't that uh, common, and he decided to take a boat. So he's waiting for his boat, so he goes into a music shop because he's a violinist. He likes music, so he goes in there. He's looking around. The music shop owner looks at his violin and says, Hey, can can I see that violin? And he says, Sure. He gives him the violin. You know, he's so precious to him. He carries it around wherever he's going. So the violinist, I mean, the shop tech, takes the violin, goes into the back room, disappears. Short time later, he comes back with two policemen, and the policemen tell Fritz Chrysler, and he says, "Come with me. You're coming down to the station." And Fritz Chrysler's like, "Why? What's wrong? What am I doing?" He says, "You have Fritz Chrysler's violin." He says, "I am Fritz Chrysler." He says, yeah, you can't play that one on us, buddy. You're coming down to the station with us. So he's like, oh, well, my, my boat's now going to leave real soon. So he's thinking, what can I do? I, I don't have time for long explanations. So he says, hey, can I prove to you that I'm Fritz Chrysler? Give me the violin. So they say, okay. So they give him the violin, and he plays a song that he knows that he's well known for. And once he finishes that, he says, now do you believe me? And they say, yeah, we believe you. Oh, yeah, better hurry up and get on your boat. <laughs> You see, what we do is comes from who we are. What, it makes us capable to do what God has gifted us to do because of our identity. Our identity determines our actions. Who we think we are determines what we do. That's the truth. Peter is saying, this is who you are. And so, what we then he moves to, in the last two verses of our text, so, This is how you grow in Christ, right? This is how we grow. This is who you are. This is your identity in Christ. Think of that. Live confidently like that. And then he moves to the last truth here in what we do as the body of Christ. Verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans Pagans just mean like those who do not believe in Christ. That though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Because of who we are in Christ, we are foreigners and exiles in this world. This is the theme we saw last Sunday in chapter 1, and it carries throughout the whole letter of 1 Peter. We who follow Jesus are no longer of this world. We are foreigners. We are exiles. Um, and we who follow Jesus may seem strange to others because of who we follow. And so Peter instructs us with two things that we are to do as the body of Christ. And the first is very obvious. It's to abstain from sinful desires. Now, abstain abstain means we are to stop before we do them. It's similar to what we heard earlier in verse 1 where we're to we're to prevent sin by ridding ourselves of our evil desires, right? Our sinful practices, which means we're already doing them and we're going to get rid of them, right? To disconnect from them. But the abstain means to avoid. Don't do it. Don't let them do it. Uh, don't, let it uh, don't act on it. And we also heard this command in chapter 1, verse 14, which said don't conform to the evil desires you once had. So because of who we are in Christ then we are to live, we are to act, likewise, abstaining from our sinful desires. In, and we can only do this in the power of the Spirit. We cannot do it on our own, like I'm just going to try harder, read it a do-it-yourself book or whatever. No, it's only in the power of the Spirit. Now, if Christ is dwelling in us as a body, then we have that power. But are we tapping into that power? Let me tell a story about this. There was a lady who uh, lived in this very small house on the seashore of Ireland at the turn of the 20th century. Now, the turn of the 20th century is like late 1800s, early 1900s. So it was, you know, when electricity was not very popular yet. And so she surprised everybody in the town because she lived like a miser, very simple, very careful with her money. But she wanted to be the fir- one of the first to get electricity in her house. So everybody's like, wow, that's pretty modern right so she had it installed well several weeks after the installation the meter reader from the electric company came to her house and and asked her if it was working okay and she said yeah it's working fine and he said well let me ask you a question then why why does the meter say that you have hardly used any power at all are you using your power she says yeah of course i'm using my power every night when it gets dark i turn on my lights so i can light all my candles and then i shut them all off <laughs> she she had tapped into the power, but not using the power. Her heart, her her house has been connected, but it wasn't transformed. She was just there with it available, but not using what was available. And oftentimes, are we the same where we experience a tr- faith in Christ Jesus and His Spirit indwells us as body of Christ as us individually, and yet we're just kind of not tapping into the power our lives remain unchanged we're still making decisions that are according to the world pattern and not according to what christ calls us to in a sense we are not transformed we're still in the darkness the second thing we do as the body of christ we see then in our last couple verses is to live such good lives among the pagans again these are just those who are not following jesus now, Peter simply means doing evangelism here. But it's interesting that he, doesn't, he's, he says, live good, good lives, you know, live such good lives. Wherever, whenever we live showing the righteousness of God, people are going to take notice because it's so different from the world. It's so different from other practices. They, if we do this, they may not like us. They may reject us. They may look at us like aliens from another planet. Like, why are you doing that? You know. But they will notice our good lives. For example, someone once shared with me that their boss at work asked them to literally fudge numbers so that things would look better than they really were. And this follower of Jesus refused. And their boss was super angry at them and made their life even worse. But, in the end, the truth came out that the numbers were like the numbers were. And, and the, the, his righteous life was definitely noticed at that moment because he stuck out. And, and get me, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all peachy after that. His life in that office was a lot harder because he didn't do what his boss had asked him to do. But his life was noticed. And who knows, maybe... That later will cause this person to think about what this person, why he did it, because he's follower of Jesus. And maybe when Jesus returns, he will glorify God when he visits us, which is what is the result, right? Is that, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, see, what we do speaks so much louder than what we say. What we say is important to help people understand why we're doing the things we do, but they're definitely going to look more at what you do, what decisions you make, how you live your life if you're a follower of Jesus than what you say. Because if they don't match up, then they just disregard us. (laughs) They're like, oh, whatever, they're just another hot air out there with the rest of the world. You see, the truth here is that our growth shapes our identity and our identity determines our actions. So the question to us is, really, what do we crave? I mean, besides lunch, because, you know, it's getting late. But what, what do we really crave? If you can't even answer, like, I don't feel like I crave anything in life right now, then you're missing out on who Jesus really is and what he's calling you to do. Because he loves you so much that he died for you and for me. I mean, that's love. So he is calling us to follow him, the true and living God, because he's forgiven us of all our sins on the cross. He's taking care of all that. And he's saying, follow me, I love you. I have life that is so good for you. And I will transform you to be a light to the world because they are stuck in their darkness. So do you choose Jesus? Do you crave him? or will you reject him? Let's pray. Lord, we have so much to learn from you. Our living, our active, our alive Lord and God. And I pray, Lord, that if there is hearts here, including my own, that are resisting your truth, that you would make it very apparent to us and that, that your call to us would put something in our hearts that would not be settled until we submit to you, our Lord, our heavenly Father who calls us out of your love. Lord, may we as Cornerstone, your body here in Somerset, grow and mature to be more and more like you, Lord Jesus going out and sharing your love and living such good lives among those who are in darkness so that they may see and give you glory on the day you visit us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.